0: Oh, that is bright. Okay, let me get a few things here. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that came into being, and in Him was life, and the life was a light that shines in men. And men love darkness rather than light. And then we read later on in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I know we're we're doing Matthew 1, but that's John 1. And the reason I started there is because tonight we're going to, for the next months or so, we're going to be digging in deeper into the Word. But it's not just the Bible. It's the living Word. And there's an attack on the Word of God today. In fact, there's, this is Wednesday night, so I'll be very direct. This morning I was listening to something, and it was um, a preacher. And he was preaching to his congregation, and he said this about Easter. He said, we don't need the Bible. We have something better. We have the event so you don't need the scriptures anymore. And he said, we need to teach our young people to go beyond the Bible and go to the event. And I'm thinking, did he really say that? And I listened to it again, and he went even deeper than that. And so the, there are people today, and, and I could use his name, and you would know who he was. And he's teaching our young people, is, this is great. You know, there's a bunch of stories here, but you don't need the, the the Bible, you don't need the word of God. You just need to find out about the events that it talks about, and then interpret those events using your own mind and understanding. So there is an attack on the word of God. A couple of weeks ago, Lance gave a introduction to the book of Matthew, and he talked about the focus of each of the authors. And he said Matthew was going to talk about the the King Jesus, and then Mark was going to talk about it as from a standpoint of being a servant, and then Luke was going to talk about it being a man, and then John was going to talk about his deity being the Son of God. And there's images that are used there. Um, There's the king or the lion from the tribe of Judah. So you picture a lion, and the servant is an ox, and the Romans, um, it was a book to the Romans, and then in the Son of Man, there's a picture of a man, of course. In God, there was the picture of an eagle. And I've heard that many, many times. And then this last week, I was reading in Ezekiel. In chapter 1, verse 10, it says this. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion. On the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox. On the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. The same four faces. And these were on the cherubim that... Ezekiel saw in his image and I began to see that the Bible is a great commentary on itself. A couple of weeks ago we were at a at the dinner that we all did at the church and there was you know four three four couples that went to each home and you had your dinners there and you sat around and talked and at the end of the evening we were there and the host came up to me and she said I am so glad you came Randy and uh, I said "You know, I'm really glad we came too and she goes you know I see you teaching all the time and tonight was the first time I ever heard you laugh, and you're kind of funny sometimes. (laughs) And I said, what what do you think I am, really? And and, and and it was a compliment, I think. (laughs) But she said, you stand up and teach, and you're so serious about these things. And there's a part of me that wants to do that. At the same time, when I teach history, I'm with junior hires, and I kind of have to be a goofball. So I kind of shed that when I come up here, so I'm... As I was starting to talk, I realized, oh, I'm doing it again. I'm being that serious guy again. So I told my wife I wasn't going to tell any dad jokes. So I'm not going to do that. So let's get into Matthew, Matthew 1. And you've got to realize, when Lance told me I was going to do this, I had to think, how many people at Calvary La Habra have a favorite verse in Matthew in the genealogy? Nobody. How many of you have ever underlined a verse in the genealogy? And there may be one or two of you that have done that. But essentially it's 17 verses that if it's in your daily reading, you're probably going, yes, I can skip ahead. I can get that extra 10 minutes in because I don't have to read the genealogies. And the Bible's full of it. There's over 50 genealogies in the Bible, so there must be some reason that they're there. So what is the thing about Matthew's genealogy? Why is it so important? And before we even explain that, let me go back for a second and go, a couple of things we want to answer here today, and in those 17 verses, I'm not going to spend 40 minutes talking about 17 verses, I guarantee you. Um, we'll finish on time. How much we'll cover, I'm not sure, but we'll finish on time. But the book was written to Jews. But think about this for a second. The Gospel of Matthew was written somewhere between, they say, between 41 and 51, 52 A.D., So Jesus dies in 33, so we got maybe 15 to 20 years later. So everything that's written here in the book of Matthew that was inspiring and encouraging, none of that was available to the people after Jesus died for 15 years. None of it. And so often we read the scriptures and we think, oh man, this would have been great. I bet they really loved reading this. They didn't have this. When the Bereans, when it says, when Paul in Acts now, we're talking probably something around A.D. 62 now, so um, they may have had the gospel of of Matthew circulating a little bit. But they didn't, they, they searched the scriptures to see if those things were true. It wasn't the book of Matthew that they were searching. It was the Old Testament. It was the prophecies. It was the things that, You know, it says, these things were written that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, which was spoken by Jeremiah or Ezekiel. These things were written that it might be fulfilled. So the Bible, the Old Testament, was promising that we see the fulfillment in the New Testament. And they say that again and again and again in the New Testament. Now, I put this scripture up here, this picture up here, for a reason. Can you all see that? So here's a hand, and it's a scribe, and he's writing. So when you read over, where's this little thing here? So if you started right here, let me make sure I'm working, here we go. Right down here, and you read up, actually, well this is Greek, so we're starting down here, and we're going up like this, and then we're gonna come here. Let me ask you a question. How many spaces between these words do you see? How many? How many spaces before the ends of the words in the next sentence do you see? We know they don't have chapters and verses but did you know they didn't have spaces between the words? So let me ask you this, if you're reading the scriptures and you're trying to figure out and you've got these scrolls and it's written like this and you're going through and you want to get to John 3.16, well where does John 3.16 start? You've got to read the whole thing. If you're searching the scriptures, you're starting from the top and you're going all the way down to the end. If you wanna know what he was thinking in John chapter three, you're reading what he said in one and two, you're reading all of that. So you're going verse by verse, precept upon precept. And you might wonder sometimes here at Calvary, why do we do the Bible verse by verse, line by line? We're going through Revelation, we're going through verse by verse because that's how God laid it down. These men wrote verse by verse. The scribes copied letter by letter and they were going across. And if you want to understand the heart and the passion and what they were feeling, let's read it and learn it the same way God gave it. So that's what we do. We go through verse by verse. Is that the most exciting way to do it? Nope. It'd be a whole lot more fun just to go ahead and read the the cool stuff and just get the biggies and never get all the nuggets that God has planned in between. Two weeks ago I was in, actually a little week and a half ago I got back, I was, from Boston, I was in Boston, and I was up there, and I do devotions when I'm working with the kids. And when I was doing the devotion, afterwards I asked some of the teachers, I said, what kind of devotions do you do? And they shared with me, and I said, what's your favorite devotion? And they said, oh, there's this one from Chuck Swindoll, it is so good. He gives great examples, and the illustrations are off the charts. And I go, cool, what scripture was he talking about? I don't know, they said. And it hit me then, I said, so often. Rather than go back to the scriptures and read what God wants to tell us, it's real easy to go pull out a devotional book and see what God's telling somebody else. And then we kind of vicariously get it, too. When God gave it to Matthew, when God gave it to Luke and John, he was speaking through their personalities his thoughts it says all scripture was inspired by God it was God breathed it was inspired so you and I when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and breathes that word in in our spirit we hear it as God intended it we don't need another author to write a book to tell us how to read it that's why we're here tonight we're gonna find out what the word says what is what are we learning in Revelation what the Spirit says to the churches and we're going verse by verse as he says those things so Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. We said, I said it was written somewhere, let's just say 50 A.D. What was happening before then? What happened before 1-1? Well, you, people, I asked someone today and they said, well, Malachi. And I said, okay, what was happening in Malachi? Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So Malachi's telling him, John the Baptist is coming. But Malachi is 430 B.C. There's over 400 years of silence. God's not speaking anymore. There is no prophetic, prophetic voice. It's though, as though God pressed pause, and there's silence. And all they can do is go back and read the scriptures. And the Old Testament canon came in, and probably say, maybe 200 years after that, Then they had much of this they could go back and peruse. It was accepted at that point. And so they had to search those scriptures. And they knew that a forerunner was coming, but they didn't know when. And I used to think that if I read Matthew, I said, well, how could they miss that Jesus was the Messiah? Here it is right in front of them. Because this didn't come for 50 years, they didn't have it when he came. So they had to go back to the Old Testament and see the prophecies and hear those things. It was really important that they got it word by word, verse by verse when they did that. So what was going on? The last time we met Israel, they were coming back from the captivity. Cyrus, they were Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. They had built the walls and they had built the temple and now they're under the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel when he interpreted the dream, said, hey, there's going to be that statue you see on top is in gold, and then there's a lesser plate in silver, and then you have bronze, and then you have iron and a little bit of clay. And he was giving the four empires. So in 586 B.C., Judah's captured by Babylon. Then comes the Medo-Persian Empire, about 605. Judah's captured in 586. And after the Medo-Persian Empire, there's another empire. So what do those look like? So here's the Babylonian. And what I want you to see here is just notice the size of it. Just roughly the rank. Here's the Mediterranean. Whoops, sorry there. So here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's where Israel is, where you guys are going in a couple of weeks. And this, you think of Iran, and Iraq, and then Iran, and over you head over this way, and here's the Persian Gulf, so that would be up this way. So you get the picture of Babylon Babylon, where it is. Here's the Persian Empire. This is where the captivity is going. See roughly the same, here's Israel again. It's that same area, okay? Then it says after that there was going to be the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, this is his empire here, all the way coming up down through here, all the way out here. This is how it ends a little bit. And then this is where Jesus lived here. And here you see down here, there's Bethlehem down here in Jerusalem. And all this area here is all going to be part of this captivity. Create a lot of stuff. And I'll go through that with you in a second. And then here's the Roman Empire. It's all this stuff again here. It's even bigger than what we saw before. And all this is being controlled by Rome. And that's where Israel is. When we open Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. So how did they get there? Well, a couple of things that happened that were really interesting. Number one, when you're in the Old Testament, there never was a synagogue. They didn't have a synagogue. That happened because of the captivity. They had to get together some way and somehow. They didn't have progressive dinners. They met at the synagogue, and they said, we can't do the sacrifices. We've got to figure out a way to do these things. So the synagogue was created, the assembly or synagogue. It was created so they could meet together. So now they're meeting together, they're under the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Alexander the Great comes on, and his dad is assassinated by the Medo-Persians. And Alexander the Great is 19 years old, and so he goes on a rampage, and he's a great military, he's great on horses, great cavalry strategies, and he's romping around and he's going through, and you know, he's taking all this land all the way over to. India over here and all the way down and down in here to Egypt. He's capturing all that and he does it all in 10 years. Amazing. He surprised himself. He was so good. But like Rome and in Greek here, there was a problem sometimes when you were a leader and you didn't know who was loyal to you. And so the assassination plots happened. And that's how his dad lost his life. And we're not exactly sure how how Alexander died. Some people say he was in a drunken stupor. There's different stories. But Alexander died, and before he died, he had said, well, what should happen with the power? And he said, I'm going to give it to my generals. And so when he gave it to his generals, let me go back over here now, these were the four generals. There was one uh, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, Seleucus, and then Uh, Lysimachus and Cassander. These were the four generals. We don't care about a couple of them. These are the only two we care about right here. This is Egypt, and this is going to be Syria and some of Mesopotamia up here. What's right in here? Guess what these nations do all the time between Ptolemy and Seleucus. Guess what they're doing all the time? They're out fighting. And who's right in the center of that? So they're right in the center of that. And so there's battles going on again and again and again and again. One of the leaders in Seleucus was a giant guy named Antiochus. Actually, his dad was called Antiochus III, and he was called Antiochus the Great. And then he's born, and he's called Antiochus IV, and it means Antiochus the Magnificent, and the Jews called him Antiochus the Madman. And he was actually one that he was, he was so bad that later on that they had gone to Rome and they were complaining about this. And he was actually held hostage. And he managed to escape. And he gets down here, and he's now, whoops, sorry about that. He's down here, and he's in Judah now. So he's coming from up here. These guys are warring all the time. And so he comes down here, and he starts doing things in Judah. He wants it to become more Greek-like. It was really kind of nice right now because... Judah was kind of doing their own thing. And so it was kind of like they weren't really subservient to anybody. But he comes down here, and he starts making havoc, and he starts warring with Ptolemy again. And so what he said is, the Jews cannot assemble for prayer. Now, he's a king. He's a leader here. Observance of the Sabbath was forbidden. Possession of the Scriptures illegal. Circumcision was illegal, and dietary laws are illegal. And until I got to the last two, I was thinking, wow, this could sound like California pretty good. Circumcision kind of put an end to that one. But this is what he did. When you wanted to put the people down and make them subservient, this is what he did. And so this, the Jews rebelled against this. And when they rebelled, and I'm kind of kind of move this story along here, when they rebelled, they called it the Maccabean Revolt. And you've, if you were raised Catholic, you probably had the book of Maccabees and it tells some of the stories here. Well this Maccabean revolt took place in 166 BC and it was led by a guy named Mattathias and what he did is he said we're going to take that temple back and it started out in a little city of Modiin and the Hasmoneans they rose up again and they went and they took back the temple and they basically purified it and they went into the temple and they took some oil and they put it in the menorah and they had enough fuel enough oil to light it for one day and miraculously that oil lasted for 8 days. And today, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah to celebrate that battle in 164 BC and call the Festival of Lights. That all took place before Matthew 1.1. So now this is going on, the temple's liberated, they're going back in things again, but the arguing and fighting doesn't stop. Whoops, don't need to show you that yet. So there's another guy, you probably heard of in Rome, Roman guys a guy named Pompey well he comes down because the guy in Seleucus he says you know what you gotta come down here we're we're having a problem here and the guys down in Egypt said you gotta come up here we're having a problem so Pompey comes over and he comes in and he captures Jerusalem and he makes it a, a client state of Rome changed everything now and this is in 63 AD so that's happening just before Matthew's written so again Matthew's hasn't been written yet They've been in captivity, they get out of captivity with Alexander the Great, it wasn't bad, they kind of have their own thing, but then when he dies, they get the generals, now there's wars and fighting, they're caught in the middle again, and then Rome is brought into it, and Rome comes in, captures Jerusalem, and now they're under Roman bondage again. And yet they think, when is this going to ever stop? And so when you're thinking about that, what was the hope that the Jewish people could have? Remember, they didn't have the New Testament yet. So all they could be hoping for is there's something about this Messiah. It's going to reign true. He said the forerunner's coming. Maybe he's going to come soon. But they didn't know. They didn't know yet. So after uh, Mattathias' temple, that goes on. It goes good until 63, and then... Pompey goes and he fights Julius Caesar. There's a battle there and Julius Caesar, Caesar defeats him. But he's only going to live another five years. And they go back down to Jerusalem and they appoint a king of the Jews. And guess what his name was? Anybody guess? Herod. You'll probably hit that next week and we'll hit it again when I do chapter 2. But Herod... He actually had an upbringing, his father converted to Judaism if you would so he was raised in the Jewish religion but he wasn't a Jew, politically he was a Roman and he's now in charge of all this area here where the Jewish Judea is, Herod's king of the Jews and just let that soak in when you start thinking about the story that we're going to go through next week, that Gabe's going to go through, that Herod here now 40 years earlier he's the king here He's the king of the Jews. He wants that position. He kills family, brothers and sisters and wives whenever he feels threatened by someone taking over his authority as king of the Jews. Suddenly that makes that story sound a little different now. So Herod's there, but Herod, one good thing, he was an incredible builder. So the temple that David Solomon built It was destroyed, it was captured. When they come back from captivity, Ezra and Nehemiah and observable, the temples rebuilt, and that's what it looked like. Just kind of get a sense. And then the Seleucid addition, so in this time when we had the the North and the South battling and fighting, they made that one little addition over there, And then after that, when they had the Maccabean Revolt and they got together, the Hasmoneans took over. They had a dynasty that landed about 400 years. They did some more things, added some temples and other things. And then this is what Herod did. So this is where it was at, and this is what Herod did. Herod did a remodel on the temple on steroids. It was incredible. If you ever have a chance to look through the pictures, what he did was phenomenal. He was known as a builder. He did other things in the area. Just an incredible building in terms of the things that he did. And then over on the top here, it says Antonia's fortress. Remember in the book of Acts when Paul was taken up and he was supposed to meet for the trial, when he got up there, um, he managed to escape. And of course, this is what the fortress was, and this is what Herod had built. So all that was going on when you get to Matthew 1.1. All that history... All that suppression, all of that anger of being, we can't, we're supposed to be God's chosen people. Where is God in all of this? And they got anxious and they were worried and they were wondering, how do we find God in the midst? And we've had 400 years of silence. What would that be like? What would the culture be doing? Look at today. You know, we don't have prophets running around today and it hasn't been for some time. And what's happening to the culture? It's slowly, quickly moving away from God. So they were battling that too. After they'd left the Medo-Persian empire, they were allowed to go back. Some people said, nah, this Medo-Persian thing is kind of cool, they didn't all come back. So now you have this remnant that comes back and they're waiting to hear. They're under Roman rule, under this guy Herod that's got a huge ego. And then he had his sons and his brothers that, we'll, we'll get involved with them later in Matthew. So we finally get to Matthew 1, 1. And then when we get there, here's what you're gonna read. There's 41 names there. Most of the names we can pronounce. What's interesting, you know, Abraham begot Isaac, begot Jacob, begot Judah, and and you can just read down, we know most of those people. Those are all the patriarchs in that time frame. Then over here we have the kings. And then over at the end, we don't really know who those people are, a lot of them. We, do, we know Joseph down at the end, but Jacob, that's not the Jacob over here, that's another guy Jacob. And you read those names, well there's a, a Zerubbabel, we've heard that name before, but the rest of them we probably don't know. They're not big hitters, they're not heavy hitters and things of that sort. So they open up Matthew, we're going down here, and this guy Matthew writes it. Matthew was a tax collector. And what did that mean? If you were in Rome and you had a lot of money, you could go to a public auction and you could say, let's make it practical, this was Rome. I could go to the auction here if I was wealthy and I could say, I would like to buy the rights to collect all the taxes for the city of La Habra. And they would say, okay, well we're gonna collect $50,000 this year. I've got a pony up $50,000. Now I have the right for the next five years to collect all the taxes for my district and then send whatever Rome says $50,000 to them. Well, the citizens don't know what the taxes are, what they all are, so I get to determine it. Well, I don't want to go down to La Habra, because I might live somewhere else, so I'm going to hire a local or a slave or somebody to do that work for me. One of the men they chose, was Matthew so they called him a publican and he was worse than a murderer worse than an adulterer he wasn't allowed in the temple you didn't want to be caught with them you didn't want to be seen eating with them you wanted nothing to do with them you see those tax collectors if I went up and I said excuse me you need to owe taxes he would say how much and I could look at him and I could determine I know that I have to collect $20 per person, I could say $50. I'm going to send $20 on to the Roman senator, whoever hired me, and I'm going to keep 30 Remember Zacchaeus, the tax gatherer, the tax collector? After Jesus, he tells him to come down, he says, and he gives 50% of his money back. Matthew didn't do that. Some people say, why did God choose Matthew? to write this book. What was it about Matthew? Well, we read in Matthew 9, 9 here, he doesn't say a whole lot about himself at all, as a matter of fact. And as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Can you imagine a tax gatherer that's hated that he's not allowed to sit with anybody, can't eat with anybody, he can't go into the temple, and here comes a highly regarded rabbi, and he says, you, come follow me. Might have been the first kind words he had heard in who knows how long. It says he just dropped everything and left. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Luke does. In chapter 5, he says this. It says, after these things, he went and saw a tax collector named Levi, so he's Jewish, tribal Levi, probably, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. So Levi invites all his tax gatherer buddies, kind of like the first evangelistic meeting, hey, I got, I got this guy Jesus, I want you all to meet him. He invites him all over and has the feast. And of course, the Pharisees at the time said, who is this guy that eats with tax gatherers and sinners? And that's when Jesus says, hey, it's not the, it's not the, uh, the well who need, have need of a physician, but it's those who are sick. And so Jesus basically applauded Matthew. You brought those that need me. And so here Matthew then, is, he's got this brilliant mind. He's a guy with numbers. They say he's a guy that probably took shorthand And he had devised a shorthand way, which is why his narratives about the stories are so long and detailed. He had a either a great mind or he had a great system to do those things. So Matthew writes the book of Matthew, and there's a lot of conventions and there's things that I studied. But one of the things that's interesting when he did this in Hebrew and in Greek, there's no numbers. So what they did is they assigned each letter had a number. So alpha was one, beta was two, and so on down the list. Omega would have been twenty-four, and then words then could be assigned a numerical value. And I'm not going to go into the weeds on this, but the, there is a lot to study on it if you wanted to. So they added these. Uh, excuse me, took David and said, "Well, what's what's David's number?" And the D and the V and I don't know Hebrew alphabet very well. But it adds up to 14. So David, David, they took 14 here. And there's 14 names in each one of those. Well, except over here, number 42. It's missing. And they go, why would Matthew make that kind of mistake? We'll get to that. He he wouldn't. So I could read all these names to you, but let me show you something. And this is probably... We'll cover the genealogy now in about 11 minutes. When you look at the genealogy, if you were God and you wanted to create proof that Jesus was the Messiah, you wouldn't put a lot of bad apples in the thing. You probably wouldn't have a tax gatherer write it for you if you were trying to convince the world that what we got here is true. But he did. Why did he do that? Starts out, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. So he starts out with Abraham, and the promise was to Abraham that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we could go through various places in uh, in 2 Samuel and Isaiah where it talks about the son of David and how his scepter won't depart. And then we can go to Revelation 22, and we see at the very end of that where we see when we talk about David... I think it's twenty-two sixteen. 16. says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So he starts out with that promise of David and blessing the world, and the same thing with Abraham. But Abraham, as you know, he was a liar twice. One time to Pharaoh and one time to Ambivalik, saying, this is my wife well she kind of was but he lied to save his hide and then there was Jacob it says here and Jacob we know was a deceiver and then there was Judah and Judah's that story in Deuteronomy 38 where Judah has a son and he finds her a wife and the son dies God kills him. God was displeased. Well, there's a a leveret concept of when a Jewish son dies then his brother goes ahead and marries her and then the offspring that they have will take the place of the line of the deceased brother. So leveret marriage was what dad did. So Judas said, okay, here's my second son, marry him. Well, he did some things that God didn't like and he took his life too well now there's the third one but he's too young and so Judas says we're gonna we're not gonna do this one yet we're gonna wait well she waits and pretty soon she realizes that Judas just stalling so he stalls and she goes and dresses up like a lady of the night and he goes down to the public square and she's there and he convinces her to have a relationship with him and he says okay I'll send you this goat and she says well how do I know you're gonna do that and she says well She says, why don't you give me your bracelets and your rings and your staff as kind of a good faith payment, so to speak. So he does that. Three months later, she starts showing. And so he's going to bring her down because she's now committed fornication, and she says, well, I may have done those things, but the man with whom I did it is the owner of these things. And she brings out the bracelet and all the things that he gave her, and he realizes, whoa, busted." And he said, you are more righteous than me, but she has twins. And one of them, Perez, born from incest, because he's her father-in-law, is in the line of the Messiah, born of incest. Go down to verse three, and it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Wait a minute, Rahab, isn't that the one, the prostitute that helped the spies? Yeah. So now we have incest, and then we've got a prostitute Then in verse 6, and Jesse begot David, so David, we know, covets his neighbor's wife. We know he commits murder, essentially ascribes murder murder to uh, Bathsheba's husband. And then he sleeps with her, so he's committing adultery too. So we have David here in the thing. Then we got Solomon, and Solomon had, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines or the other way around. It was 1,000 women running around. I don't even, can't even imagine that. <laughs> and then it says Solomon begot Rehoboam, so David's grandson, and Rehoboam wants to split up the kingdom. In fact, it's right then that the nation of Israel divides. You've got the ten in the north, and then you've got the two, Benjamin and Judah, down in the south, and now we've got a separate Israel. There's 19 kings in, in the ten nations of Israel, and not one of them was good, not one. It starts right here, and not one was good. There was 20 in Judah, and only eight of them were good. And it starts right here. And some of these names down here, some of the good ones. Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram was a bad guy. He killed six of his brothers. Then there was Uzziah. He was a good one. And then Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh was awful. This is a guy that literally took his kids and would lay them on the altar to Moloch when they heated up the altar and let the kids just burn. Killed his wives, killed his family members. And the evil was so bad, God was so displeased. These are the people that are in. And you say, why was God doing that? And then one last thing, in this name's here. And then in verse 11, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And you say, okay. Well, in Jeremiah 22, 30, it says this. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling evermore in Judah. We have a problem, Houston because it says no descendant of that guy that's listed in the genealogy there in Matthew none of his descendants can sit on the throne of David and the whole point of Matthew was to prove to all the Jewish nation that Jesus is the Messiah he is the king of Judah he is the David's offspring who's going to sit on that throne forever the one we just read in Revelation that's the guy but he can't sit on this throne because of that curse so the line is cursed god has a problem I imagine God probably stood there and said to the Holy Spirit, hey, check out what I'm doing now. (laughs) People often wonder, there's two genealogies. There's another genealogy in Luke. Starts in verse 23. Starts with Jesus, and in fact, it's the one we get from the Charlie Bound Christmas. They always read that one, because this one, the one we read in Matthew, starts out with Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. That's a little too much for most people. So they always go to the Luke one because it starts with Adam. So it goes all the way down through, and again, we don't have time to go through this. But when it goes all the way down through, when it gets to the end, it, there's, again, it looks like there's a problem here. But there was, again, God was so good. Because in Moses' day, there was a father. He came and he said, hey, I've just got daughters. I've got three daughters. So I could go and say, hey, what about my name? How am I going to pass it down? I don't have a male child, an heir, to pass it through. What am I going to do? And so Moses makes an exception. And they had an exception, and you can follow it through in the Scriptures. And again, I don't have time to do that with you now. But they made an exception for that. You basically become an adoption. It's not an adoption, but you become a son of somebody else. So in a sense, Joseph became the son of Mary's dad. When you've looked down that genealogy, you can see that distinction there. I can't show it here because this is Mrs. Matthews. So now when you look at Mary's line, you see Mary starts and she gets to David the same way. But then when they get to David, she doesn't go through Solomon, which takes you down to Jeconiah, which curses the line, which means that guy can't sit on the throne. But she goes through another son, And she goes through nathan and she finds out and her line goes all the way down to her dad this exception is placed into into being and it comes into mary and so suddenly now you have a clean bloodline from back in abraham all the way down through david and then on down to the baby jesus and so god solved the problem will i say it's perfect now oh, you got to do a lot of studying here. Matthew understood this, and he went through a lot of those things. A Jewish person in genealogies would understand, because the genealogy was important. If you wanted to buy or sell your land, and you had a tribe, remember we did Joshua here, and at the end Joshua lets all the people go to their various places and gets their land? If you did some bad financial things and lost your land, and you wanted to buy it back, you had to prove it was in your tribe, and you needed a genealogy to do that. If you, were going, if you were a Levite and you wanted to marry someone else that was in the tribe of Levi, she had to prove that she was a Levite for five generations. And if you wanted to be a priest, you had to go back and prove that your line was good all the way back to Aaron. And after the captivity, people came up and said, hey, we're priests. And they went to Ezra. We want to be priests, too. And so he went and checked. And if it's Ezra, or I think it's Ezra 262 long chapter. Right there it says, hey, we went and looked, and you weren't found good, and he dismissed them. So a genealogy was important. It was like a legal document that justified and verified everything that you were doing for land, for marriage, and then, of course, to prove that you were the Savior here. So what's the point of a genealogy? All the names, we've heard them all before, but when you go through it now, you realize, wait a minute. Could it be, could it be that when God put this thing together, he would know that one day you and I are going to sit here or stand here and we're going to be going through things in life in a culture where things aren't necessarily going great and we're thinking, I wish God would use me to do something, but you don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know where I've been in my life. You don't know the things that I've done wrong in my life you don't know the thoughts, or you don't know my family, you don't know what my dad did, you don't know and all the things that are keeping you and stopping you from moving forward and trusting God because you don't feel worthy. And if the genealogy does everything, it says God uses imperfect men for his perfect purpose. And I know that sounds good, but the reality is, is that's what he did. If he wanted to have a perfect genealogy to show that Jesus, he could have done that. But he used adulterers. He used incestual relationships. We didn't talk about Ruth the Moabite. You know, that happened because Lot's daughters slept with him and the Moab and Ammon came into being and that's what Ruth was part of. So everybody that's listed there, it seems like they had a story that they really would want to keep secret and that they're listed there. It's like the hall of shame as opposed to a hall of faith. So when you start In the book of Matthew, and realize that God is trying to take you now. He's going to introduce you to Jesus. He is the king. He is the promised Messiah. And no matter who you are, no matter what your lineage is, Gentile, male or female, sinner or saint, good family or bad family or struggles, God says he is your savior. What a great way to start off a book where God's reaching out and saying, I am your savior, I, I'm here for you. All these bad people, and I guarantee, none of us in here or anywhere near that, could be, could be ever guilty of that, and yet God allowed them. So Jesus did not allow his, his family, his heritage, the things he associated with, to define him. It's not how he got his identity, and it's not how you and I get our identity. We cannot allow our circumstances to give our identity. What did Paul say in Philippians 3? He says, I don't think about those things. I leave them behind, but I press on toward the goal of the upward call of Jesus Christ. I press on. I lay behind the things that are in my past. And then behold, you know, in Christ you're a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. Those are promises, but when you're hurting, they, they're hard to grasp hold of. And the genealogy says, see I proved it. I proved it that your identity is not found in your past, it's found in me, because I have overcome the world. I went over my time. But I would be remiss, I think, if I didn't say, I I was going over some of these things today and I was in my car, and I think Mead's gonna come up here in a second. as I was getting to this, I was just thinking about these things and I just thought of my own life and things and I, those times that were struggles and those times where it was difficult to, to kind of press through. And sometimes we're at church and we see things around and people around that are having victories and something and I used to never think, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that. I wish I didn't have this going on. I wish I could claim And then there's people that are suffering because someone has died and they're carrying that with them or they've lost a loved one or their family member's struggling or they're now in drugs or they're making decisions that embarrasses us and they just feel like, I can't do anything for the Lord because I'm stuck over here with all these things. And God says, no. Look what my son endured to get here to be Jesus for you. And I've written it down so that you might see that I have overcome. So a message tonight would be if you're anywhere in your life where, boy, I just need, I just need that guy, that God, that Jesus to come in and let me dump my past and claim my future. That's what I want. That's what I want to do. I want to dump my past and claim my future. I want to leave the past behind and press on toward the upward call, the goal of knowing him and all that he would do. So this isn't anything fancy. It's just means I don't know what he's going to play. I just think if that's you or if that's something you're thinking or no, I would think, let's just, let's just get up front here and let's just dump it. We kind of did it on Sunday with our sins and their things, and I'm thinking, well, if, we, if you're feeling there's anything that's holding you back that God says no, it's not, I've taken care of it. You are mine then let's go before the Lord and let's leave it there. Because next week we're gonna find out that God solved a whole lot with the virgin birth, or whenever we do the next one, with the virgin birth. He didn't stop, he kept taking the next step to prove that what he started here was still working. I didn't quit with the genealogy, now I'm gonna prove miracles. And I'm gonna show you that I am the God that can rid you of your past and give you a new future, a confident future. So, I guess we didn't talk about this. <laughs> so why don't we do this? Why don't we go um, as he leads this song here? Uh, I'll close in prayer, and then while he does that, if um, I'm sure someone will probably walk up. If you come up here to pray, but this is this is Wednesday night. I call it you know it's a family group. Let's just if if that's what we need, then let's do that. If we don't, we'll worship together and be dismissed. Okay. So Father. Thank you that you're a God who took great pains to lead your people through 400 years to a point where they would be able and willing to hear about the Savior. And thank you, Lord, that we don't have to wait for 50 years for we've got the book now. We've got it all in front of us. We can go back and look and see all that you've done. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, for any heart here that is just burdened or heavy because the past or circumstances or some identity that they've latched onto is holding them back. Lord, would you speak to their heart now? Free them from that, that they might freely enjoy all that you promised, all that you have in store for them. We pray and we thank you, Lord, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.